Cool. Thanks very much, Johnny. Uh, let me have my welcome to Johnny's. Great to see you, see you here this morning. Um, my name's Chris Evans. I'm the assistant pastor here. And um, we're going to carry on our wonderful um, slow read. Well, we're getting slightly quicker. A few more verses this week through um, John chapter 1. Um, why don't I pray as we come to this wonderful, uh, rich passage? Heavenly Father, over the last few weeks, our prayer has been that we would see the glory of your Son and that our hearts would be amazed, enthralled, captivated by who he is and all that he has done. And we pray that by your Spirit that we might do that again this morning. And we pray both that our hearts would be thrilled at what we see at the invitation he offers. And we pray that you would help us to concentrate as our minds are stretched by thinking things that are deep, that are divine, that are, in a sense, impossible for us to comprehend apart from your help. And even with your help, we are but creatures. You are the eternal God. So help us to gaze in wonder and worship, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was uh, doing my A-levels a little while ago, um, we studied the prelude to an opera called Tristan and Isolde by Wagner. Um, anyone seen it? Hands up. Oh, a few people have. Well done. Well done. It's about five and a half hours. Um, but the prelude is ten minutes, and it blew my mind. Uh, whether you're an opera fan or not, I'm guessing by the hands up, most not, or at least not Wagner. Um, you have to admire, in 10 minutes, he introduces all the musical ideas and themes that are about to go on for five and a half hours. He introduces all the ideas and characters, the tragedy of an ill-fated romance that we're about to hear. In fact, he doesn't just do it in 10 minutes. He kind of does it in the first 10 seconds. Um, the first thing you hear is a cello. Um, can't do it very well, but it kind of comes like this. Dum, da, da, da. And that is the character Tristan, okay? And that, that's the first sound that you get. That is, that's the theme. As you go through, you'll hear that again and again. That comes. And that last note, on that last note, suddenly a beautiful chord. But it's a mysterious chord. It's, it's full of tension. You don't know which way it's going to resolve. It's such a kind of complex chord that um, even as an A-level music student in the early 2000s, it's been known as the Tristan chord. You can look it up on Wikipedia. So you get this chord, and then the top note of the chord is an oboe, and it goes something like, da, 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 and then you get silence. And that little oboe is Isolde. And there in 10 seconds, you have basically the opera. Tristan comes along, they meet, there's a bit of drama, and... You know, they meet and in the middle of this drama, and it's pretty dramatic. I won't say any more. <laughs> I've saved you five and a half hours, but you didn't come for a music lecture. This prelude in miniature, it gives you everything that you're about to, to kind of see and, and, and behold. Now, there's more that needs unpacking, obviously. But if you get the first 10 seconds or 10 minutes, then you've kind of got the whole opera. And as we've gone through John's gospel, the first sort of 18 verses here, we've been gazing at the glory of the sun. 
And these first 18 verses are a little bit of a prelude in the same way. Uh, They give us kind of in miniature all of the themes that we're about to read and witness. Um, They give us kind of a grid to read the rest of the gospel through. And if you read the rest of the gospel and then come back here, you, you, you see so much more in kind of seed form. So far, we've seen the glory of the Son in eternity, in creation, and today we see the glory of the Son in salvation as we come to verse 6 to 13. And this is where some of the hard thinking we've done the last few weeks is going to pay off. John shows us that this glorious Son that we've been beholding has come to bring a glorious salvation. The glorious Son has come to bring a glorious salvation. And as we go through, we're going to see there is a tragedy that we must avoid, but an amazing privilege to embrace. So let's look. Our our first point is the true light rejected. That is the tragedy to avoid. As we go to verses 6 to 9, have a look down. We, We see the staggering fact that the light in whom is life is coming into the world. That is the Lord Jesus. But this isn't completely unexpected. It is anticipated. Even in these verses, we get a sense of that. Firstly, there's a man called John. Have a look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. That's the, the Lord Jesus. So that through him, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John is anticipating the lights coming into the world. He's like a town herald. He's put in place to bear witness to the light before he comes. So that when he does come, everyone is going to be ready to listen and believe. He's there to get people ready, but he's not the main event. The light is anticipated by John, but also we're told that the light himself is coming. He he himself is expected. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now this should stop us in our tracks. Kind of go back, listen to the last two sermons, and then think about this fact. The one who made all things, who sustains all things by his word, who is before all things. The one who brings the offer of eternal life to all who believe, is coming into the world as a man, Jesus Christ. The true light is anticipated, and the anticipating is building. John first, and then the the light himself is coming. But this anticipation hasn't come out of nowhere, has it? If you're holding a Bible, you can have a look down and and see actually there's, there's quite a lot that's already happened. We're jumping in more than two-thirds of the way through the story, more like kind of four-fifths from the look of my Bible. The true light is coming to a place where darkness has cast shadows for hundreds and thousands of years, all the way back since Genesis chapter 3. Darkness that has led to death, sin, suffering, and exile. Darkness that has led to alienation from God. The light has continued to shine. People have had hope. There have been promises of a coming Messiah, a coming Saviour. But for many, darkness has been the dominant theme. 
a reading we often have at Christmas is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The light was there, maybe far off, but they were walking in darkness. But John says, it's coming. It's near. I wonder if you've ever had to wait for something that seemed so important, so longed for, so necessary. Um, A year or two back, I was driving back home and I saw someone kind of collapsed on a pavement. Um, So pulled in, got out, and this man was having a a fit. Um, Before long, someone else stopped and joined to help, but we needed to call an ambulance. Didn't, Didn't know what to do. Waiting for them to come felt like an eternity. Every moment the phone goes off, you're hoping it's them saying, oh, we're just around the corner. We were, in a sense, in, in darkness. We were waiting for a very particular kind of lights to arrive. But once they do come, you know they're going to sort everything out. But the anticipation in the meantime feels desperate. Well, what's going to happen to this guy? I wonder if you've ever anticipated the arrival of something or someone like that. But that was just to save one person. This darkness threatens the whole world. And here is the tragedy of the opening of John. Because far from the welcome he should have received when he comes, though he was anticipated so highly, the true light, when he does come, is rejected. True light is rejected. And John helps us to kind of feel this tragedy two times over. Firstly, have a look down, verse 10, he's rejected by the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The one who made the world has come into the world. The world doesn't know who he is. Alfred Hitchcock was a a famous film director. Some of you may have seen his films through the kind of 30s all the way through to the 70s. He was regularly named the master of suspense. Um, But he was also known, if you've watched any of his films, he quite liked to make cameo appearances in them. And once you know kind of what to look for, you can often spot him. Maybe a passenger on a bus, a man reading a newspaper, someone walking a dog. Got a couple of pictures here. Here he is next to Cary Grant, another one. There we go, he just misses a bus that a main character's got on. And then one more, here we go. Some, the main character gets off a train and for some reason he's carrying a double bass getting on there. But he liked, he liked to sort of just pop himself in his films. The one through whom the film was made, you could say, is also in the film itself. The creator steps inside his creation. And you know, if you know what to look for, it's a bit of light relief. You kind of think, oh, it's Alfred Hitchcock. But for the main characters in the film, his presence there, I mean, it's a complete non-event. I mean, you know, someone missing a bus, someone getting onto a, a, a coach. There's never anything in the plot that he changes. And you'd expect that in, in a film, in a story, wouldn't you? But the maker of the entire universe, stepping into his creation, not just to, to kind of appear, but to come and bring salvation to be ignored, to be unrecognized. That is a tragedy, isn't it? But it gets even worse than that. It's a tragedy two times over. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, 
but his own did not receive him. The word for his own here, it literally means he came to his home. His home. Imagine uh, one day come turning up on your doorstep, uh, knocking on the door, uh, and you're turned away. The door is slammed in your face. This, this is my home. Where else do I go? That is the kind of sense of the outrage we're supposed to begin to feel here. But who are his own? Well, here they are the, the people of Israel. Jesus is the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse that was prophesied in Isaiah 11. He is the long-awaited son of David who would reign forever. He is the promised king. But he comes to his people and they shut the door in his face. The beginning of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, uh, he puts it like this talking uh, about his people. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They're worse than animals. You know who they belong to and where to get food. And in fact, it gets worse than that because this verse sums up the whole first half of John's gospel, really. Get to chapter 11, and the Jews are plotting again and again. 11.53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. It's not just a door slammed in the face. Going back to our ambulance illustration, it's like us waiting there uh, for for them to arrive, uh, but not so that he can help so that we can batter him over the head. But we might think, well, what's this really got to do with me? I'm, I'm not Jewish, I'm not part of Israel. But that doesn't put us off the hook. What's true of Israel is a picture of all humanity apart from the grace of God. The true light is anticipated but rejected by sinful men. And that is a tragedy. And I wonder, we have to ask ourselves, is that a tragedy that we see in our own lives, in our own hearts? John is putting, us, putting this here to say, don't be the same as the world. Don't be like Israel. If you do, you are severing all ties with the only hope that we have. Like the person waiting for the ambulance, you are left bleeding out, ultimately facing death and hell, without hope and without light. And there are lots of other lights that might come along, sound like they can save us, but ultimately they will all be found wanting. Jesus here, did you see verse 9? He's described as the true light. Only this glorious son can bring the glorious salvation that we need. Any other ambulance driver won't do. In fact, someone did stop when I was waiting there who was from St. John's Ambulance. Well, this, is, this is great. Uh, but, but all they could do was get him in the recovery position. We needed someone qualified to bring real help. In a similar way, only Jesus is the true light. And here, the true light is rejected. That's a tragedy. 
So don't let that be the script that is played out in our lives. That's a tragedy to avoid. But thankfully, verses 12 to 13 shine a ray of hope. And in a sense, this hope makes what we've read already so tragic because what he has come to bring is so wonderful. He brings a privilege for us to embrace. So that's our second point, the true gift received. Have a look at verse 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Now the way John describes Jesus coming here to bring salvation here is so striking. He's trying to help us get our kind of theological ducks in a row. He, he wants us to grasp what is the highest privilege that this glorious son has come to bring. And verse 12 is John's summary. He gave the right to become children of God. Now, I wonder... If we were given the opportunity to sum up what Jesus came to do, would we put it in the same way that John does? What might we expect? Some answers. Jesus has come to die for our sins, to die in our place, to live a perfect life for us, to fulfill the prophecies so that we can be forgiven, to make us right with God, peace with God, to take away our shame. All of these are wonderfully true, aren't they? They are wonderfully true. And the gospel is not nothing less than those statements. But John is saying it is more. John doesn't start with these things because he wants us to see that none of these is the end goal. Jesus' obedient life, his miracles, his words, his death, all of these are the means to give us the right to become children of God. Jesus' goal isn't just to simply balance the ledger with God, but to restore a relationship with a God through whom, for whom, and in whom we were made. He's come to bring the truest of gifts, the highest of privileges, the privilege of knowing God himself and knowing him as our Heavenly Father privilege of adoption. This is the glorious salvation he is coming to bring. I want to point out a couple of things in verse 12 and 13 then. That is what he is coming to bring. We must see, verse 12, that we are, firstly, we are not children of God naturally. If Jesus if this was having the right to be children of God was something that, that we already had or we could earn, then why does verse 12 tell us that Jesus had come to give it to us? It's easy to think, isn't it, of the whole world as God's children. But John says that isn't quite true, or at least maybe not in the sense we think about it. It's true in the sense that all the world is created by God, but the right to be children, that privileged relationship that that the Lord Jesus has with his heavenly father is so much more that that cannot be earned that has to be given 
We are not God's children naturally. Only the eternal son is. John describes us, get to John chapter 8, as children of the devil. Uh, Paul talks about us being children of wrath. Our problem is that by nature we are alienated from God. And when we think of the word alienation, it's easy to think estranged, isn't it? As if, oh, we just haven't seen each other for a long time. It was based on a little tiff we had many years ago, and we just kind of went separate ways. But for John, alienation is so much more than estrangement. It is, it is enmity. We are enemies with God because of our sinful rebellion. So if we're going to become children, we need so much more than just being reacquainted with God. We need more than a fireside chat or some sort of group therapy. We need a debt of sin to be paid. We need God's righteous wrath to be satisfied. You see, the problem Jesus has come to address is much worse than we would ever dream. We need nothing short of a great salvation. But amazingly, Jesus has come to bring a glorious one. For the hope that he brings is more than being reacquainted with God. Now that would be great. But he comes to make us right with God, yes, dealing with our sin, but not simply getting a not guilty verdict and then walking off. He comes to welcome us in to the eternal happiness of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He comes to make us right with God, not simply as someone is right with a judge, but right with God as one is right with a father. In Jesus, our enmity with God and our alienation from God can be dealt with. And that isn't just a great salvation, it is a glorious one. That is a true gift Indeed, that is the highest of privileges. But how? How? Well, the theologian J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote this, which I found so helpful this week. It's going to come up on the screen, so it's a little bit dark. Um, That's the wrong one. I'm going to read you the right one, sorry. Where I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words... My proposal would be, listen up, adoption through propitiation. We'll look at those words. Adoption through propitiation. And he said, I do not expect to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Now, propitiation is not a word that we tend to use every day. But essentially it means turning away of anger. So, bit of a stereotype, I know, but uh, a man might propitiate his wife's anger at being late home from work by turning up on the door with some flowers. Or you might propitiate the anger of a child whose toy is broken by taking them to Toys R Us to buy a new one. Now, that's quite small, isn't it? But scripture talks about Christ making propitiation for our sin, turning away God's anger at our sin by taking it on himself. That's what needs to happen for our enmity with God to be solved. That's propitiation. But that isn't the goal of salvation. That is the means. That is how we get there. 
Adoption through propitiation, says Packer. And it's not just a genius way of summarizing the New Testament message. It summarizes John's gospel and helps us see what Jesus is coming to bring. It's a little bit like getting directions. Um, One of my best friends has moved to Andover recently. And if someone tells me, I want to get to Andover from our house, then I've got a few options. Um, Depending on kind of time of day, traffic, I could say, well, nip up the M3 and then at that junction by Tesco's, go up the A34 and, you know, kind of almost there. Or if it's sort of, I don't know, rush hour time uh, or M3, there's kind of lots of traffic jam, you might want to go through centre of town and up the Andover Road or loop round Chibolton Avenue if the other two are busy. Each of these is a kind of means to an end, isn't it? The goal is not to enjoy a picturesque trip up the M3 or the the sights of Winchester Town Centre. The goal is to get to Andover and enjoy seeing my friend Steve. It's a bit like that here. The end is adoption and the means is propitiation. But unlike getting to Andover, there aren't lots of ways. There is only one way. We don't get adopted any other way than through the earthly ministry of Jesus and his death, which makes propitiation for sin. And John shows us that himself. 1 verse 12, that's right at the beginning of his gospel. we've, We've just seen that. That is the goal of salvation, giving us the right to become children of God. Fast forward to the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 17. He's about to go back to his father. And what does he say? I am ascending to my father and your father. My God and your God. The people he's speaking to now are children. They now are part of God's family. Well, how? What has happened between the beginning of John's gospel and the end? Well, he's lived a perfect life. He's made propitiation for sin on the cross. This is a glorious salvation. But John wants us to know that only the glorious son alone can bring it about. I saw um, a kind of video of a, a rescue operation earlier this week. Um, a toddler had fallen down to this kind of narrow pipeline, I don't know if it was digging a well or something, in a building site by someone's house. And the fire brigade were out, they were poking things down, ropes and cranes, nothing was working. Finally, you've got these kind of big burly men in their suits, finally this fairly skinny lad turns up, he's maybe about nine or ten, I don't know if he's a sibling or a friend, he steps up and he offers to go down the pipe. And the thing is, no one else would fit. So what they do is they kind of rope him up and he goes down head first with his arms reaching down so he can grab hold of the the little guy. And after several minutes of panic, you see the men pulling up the rope and out come feet, legs, a torso and a little wriggling toddler. And there's a big, on the video, kind of, um, he went down a boy, he comes out a man or hero, something like that. The point is, only, only he could, out of all the people there, only he could do it because of his size, only he was qualified to do it. I know it's a bit silly, but there's a similar thing going on here that John wants us to see, that it is only the glorious son who can bring about this glorious 
salvation. Jesus alone can make us children of God. Only who he is can do what he has done. And this is where the rubber hits the road with everything we've seen so far in John 1. Only he firstly can bring about propitiation. He can make us children because he can die for our sin. He can turn God's anger away as God who has taken on flesh. As a man, he can live an obedient life. As a man, he can suffer and die. As a man, he can die in our place, unlike an animal sacrifice. He can be a substitute. But as the son of God, as he dies, he can pay an infinite price to cover all of God's wrath at our sin. Jesus alone can make propitiation for sin. And John says so much about this in his gospel. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But propitiation alone doesn't promise to solve our alienation from God. It deals with our enmity with him, but it comes with no guarantee that we're going to be involved in each other's lives. Propitiation alone is sort of like placating a judge. Once the verdict is is made, there's no kind of guarantee that you have an ongoing relationship with them. And that's why propitiation isn't the goal, but it is the means, it is the way there. But because the one who makes us right with God as judge is the eternal son of the father, well, he can restore us and bring about adoption too. As eternal son, as God, the son, he has an eternal relationship with the father. And as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is in eternity, extends into history in the incarnation. And it can be shared with us. Because you can't give something that you don't have, can you? Only the Lord Jesus, as the only begotten son, has this relationship to share, to bring us into. It is his to give. And the gift is ultimately himself. Christ as our propitiation leads to Christ as our brother. God the Son is born of man so that mankind might become children of God. Jesus, born of Mary, to die in our place so that we might be born of God and welcomed into the family and have everlasting life. Alienation is answered with adoption. Only the glorious Son can bring this about. This is the true gift to be received. This is the highest privilege that we must embrace. It's no wonder that John, when he goes on to write a letter, a number of books later, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, that we get to enjoy the love, the eternal love of the Father and the Son in the Spirit, that we are woven into that. That is a privilege indeed. But as we close, who is this gift for? And how do we receive it? Verse 12 is for all who received him, who believe in his name. We receive the gift by receiving and believing in Jesus, by acknowledging our need of a saviour, by confessing our sin and longing to live life in his family for his honour. 
So if you're here today and, and that isn't you, the question must be, if you have not yet rejected the true light fully, will you receive the true gift? What might be holding you back? The glory of the Son in salvation is that he gives us himself that we can find in him the home and the family that we are always made for. But what about those of us who have received this gift? Well, J.I. Packer wrote um, something else. In, he's got a great chapter on adoption. Do go and read it. He wrote this. Um, I think this is going to come up. There we go. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. That's huge, isn't it? Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. For those of us who know and treasure the events of Jesus' life and the things that he's done for us, maybe a good question to ask is, is what is it that I treasure most about the gospel? Is it the things that Jesus has done? Is it the fact that I'm safe from judgment? Or is it the safety of Jesus himself? That I'm part of his family? That I have communion with the triune God? Is it the gift he gives? Or is it the giver? And beautifully, what John tells us is that the glory of the Son in salvation shows us Jesus' gift and giver all rolled into one. That Christ himself is what Christ offers. And that is a privilege indeed. So as we close, let's take a moment to reflect on all we've heard and pray that we would grasp the privilege that Jesus has come to give, the true gift. We sang these words earlier. Here is love, vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above, are the souls that he has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time, glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are intertwined. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that the Lord Jesus came not simply to make us right with you by dealing with our sin, but in dealing with our sin brings us into a relationship of adoption, that we belong in your family, that we are not simply washed, but washed and welcomed. And that as your children, we have a glorious hope of being with you forever as your precious daughters and treasured sons, of being heirs to the new creation, of walking through life knowing that we are precious in your sight because of all that you have done in Jesus. Father, help us, we pray, to embrace and to rejoice and to just grasp something more of the immense privilege that this is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.